If you want to improve the odds for your kid, you're going to have to have the courage to do things differently, to educate your child differently. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, when people attend your conference, which would you say is one of the most popular talks you give? Oh, without a doubt. It's teaching boys and other children who would rather be making forts all day. <laughs> and I, I can personally attest to this because I remember when you were first talking about presenting this talk. So this would have been, wow, 15 years ago. Yeah. And as a boy mom, of course, I have three boys. I was very interested in hearing what you were going to say. And one of the people that you reference in the talk, one of the resources that you point your listeners to is the Dr. book. Dr. Leonard Sachs and Why Gender Matters and all of his work. And he's with us now. He is with us now. This is so exciting. Dr. Sachs, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, Dr. Sachs, um, I know a bit about you because I've been following you for years, but uh, some of our listeners may not. Uh, tell us a little bit about your um, your education, your training, your areas of specialty, because you you are a very well educated person. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, I earned my undergraduate degree in biology at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I earned my medical degree as well as a PhD in psychology, uh, both at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I did a three-year residency in family medicine. I am board certified in family medicine. I have been a medical doctor for 32 years. I started visiting schools uh, back in 2001. Being both a psychologist and a medical doctor, I found myself doing a lot of evaluations of kids, especially boys who were struggling in school. I visited the schools, started visiting schools in a big way in 2001. I've now visited more than 400 schools over the last 17 years. I've uh, written four books, uh, Why Gender Matters, um, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. And I'm still a medical doctor uh, now in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and I'm still leading workshops for schools, uh, sharing what I have learned uh, from those visits to schools uh, over the past many years. I've spoken with you here and there over many years. I think we first met in Atlanta at a Catholic schools event probably 17, 16, 17 years ago, if my memory serves. Something like that, yes. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, we haven't got much older, the two of us. We look about the same, <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, your talk, you, you gave a four-hour presentation at that conference. And to this day, I still have the notes that I took. I was on the edge of my seat. I was wrapped because you were giving all of the science and research to support so many things that I had observed but seemed wrong, it seemed kind of, you know, uncomfortable to say to people, like, 
boys and girls actually learn differently. And I was just so excited. I, I got your Why Gender Matters first edition, and I swallowed it up, took more notes. And so the first half of that talk that I do uh, teaching boys and other children who would rather be making forts all day is really entirely what I learned from you back in those early days. Thank you. One of the things I remember from your presentation that really rings a bell with almost everyone that I share it with is how um, boys and girls use language differently. One study I believe you mentioned had to do with uh, evaluating the vocabulary, the, the descriptors or the most powerful words in the sentences of uh, I think it was college students who were in the study and found that a lot of the men would lean toward the verbs and adverbs and most of the women would lean toward the adjectives. Do you remember? Well, I, th I think you're referring now to studies that I cited. I cited five studies of free drawing in children. I did also talk about a study with college students, but the studies I'm thinking now are studies in which uh, researchers gave girls and boys a blank piece of paper and a box of crayons and said to them, draw whatever you want. I cited studies from the United States, England, South Africa, Japan, and Thailand, in which researchers did just that. It's called free drawing. Let kids draw whatever they want. And what girls draw are people, pets, flowers, and trees. It doesn't matter whether this girl is American or Japanese, whether she comes from an affluent home or a low-income home. Girls everywhere draw people, pets, flowers, and trees, usually two, three, or four, arranged on a horizontal ground that people have eyes, mouth, hair, and clothes. The great majority of boys draw something quite different. The great majority of boys are drawing a scene of action at a moment of change, like a monster eating an alien or a rocket smashing into a planet, human figures, if present are often stick figures, lacking eyes, mouth, hair, and clothes. Girls use 10 or more crayons with a predominance of red, orange, yellow, green, beige, and brown. Boys use six or fewer crayons with a predominance of black, gray, silver, and blue. Uh, and uh, what I believe I might have said in that presentation many years ago is that uh, girls draw nouns, boys draw verbs, because that's what how one of the researchers actually summarized the finding. But then I gave a presentation and a teacher said, well, liberty and justice are nouns and, and quarreled with that. So I, I don't use that formulation anymore. I say boys, most boys try to draw a scene of action. Most girls, almost all girls are drawing people, pets, flowers and trees. I do want to mention, though, that in each of these five studies, roughly eight percent of boys, about one in 12 boys, draw something very much like what the girls draw. But one in 12 boys draw people, pets, flowers, and trees. It turns out that boys who draw people, pets, and trees have much more in common uh, than you might imagine with other boys who draw people, pets, and trees. They're at least three times more likely to have allergies, asthma, or eczema sufficiently severe to warrant ongoing consultation with a physician. They may be athletic, but they're not playing football or ice hockey. They're playing tennis, track, or golf because these boys don't like to hit and they don't like to be hit. And in school, they're much more likely to become victims of bullying. Because a favorite game among 12-year-old boys is one boy comes up to another boy and says, hey, how about I hit you as hard as I can, and then you hit me as hard as you can. And this boy will say, <laughs> this boy will say but I don't want to hit you, and I don't want you to hit me. And he runs off and, boom, marks himself as a victim of bullying. So one question we get often, and um, 
I've developed a, a few different ways to answer this question, but I would be curious how you would answer it. Teachers, um, usually women teachers, mothers who have homeschool boys, and writing, and they'll say, well, how come my boy or boys or son wants to always write things that are violent and gross? And how much is too much? And how do I steer them away from that? Do you have you dealt with that question at all? Certainly. That's always a focus when I meet with teachers. Uh, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds? So a, uh, I visited a high school and parents told me about how their 10th grade son, the assignment was to write about whatever you want. And the boy chose to write about the Battle of Stalingrad, winter 1942, from the perspective of a Russian soldier. And the Russian soldier is on patrol, and he is ambushed by a German soldier who's trying to stab him with a knife so as to make no noise. And the Russian soldier fires his rifle at point-blank range into the face of the German soldier and then describes in his story what happens when you fire a rifle at point-blank range in another man's face. What happens is that the head explodes. A piece of brain goes this way. A piece of eyeball goes this way. A piece of chin with a tooth attached goes this way. This boy was suspended from his high school. And the parents were told that he, the son would not be allowed to return until the parents had obtained an evaluation from a licensed professional who would have to uh, write a letter to the school on stationery assuring the school that the boy posed no imminent danger to himself or to others. And when the parents shared that story with me, it really struck a chord because I wrote a similar story. Uh, 41 years ago, I was a senior at Shaker Heights High School in Ohio, and the lead teacher for English, Robert Hansen, nominated me and three other students to sit for a national competition sponsored by the National Council of Teachers of English, NCTE. So Proctor showed us each student to a room, uh, gave us each a, a blue book, and said, you have 45 minutes, write a story. I wrote a story about East German refugees uh, trying to escape to West Germany, crossing a minefield in the middle of the night. And one of them cross, uh, and as they're almost at the border, uh, one of them steps on a mine, which blows off his left leg to the hip and his right leg to the knee. So now he has no feet. He's crawling west the last few feet as blood is pouring out of the stumps where his legs used to be. And the East German guards have, have trained their uh, lights on him and are, are shooting at him, but narrowly missing. He, he reaches the border and the West German guards pick him up uh, to take him to hospital. And in that moment, he dies. The end. Uh, my, own, my own mom died in uh, September 2008, going through her papers after her death. death I found that she had saved the certificate mm -hmm. by the NCTE sent to our home, awarding me their highest honor in creative writing. Boys have always written about traumatic amputation and violent death. Uh, 40 years ago, it could get you a prize, as it did for me. Today, it will often get you suspended or other disciplinary infraction. Boys doing things that boys have always done, writing stories about violent death, drawing pictures of weapons, throwing snowballs at each other, pointing fingers at one another, saying, bang, bang, you're dead. Boys doing things that boys have always done now gets you in trouble. And that's one big reason why so many boys now regard academic achievement as unmasculine. And I explore that topic at great length in my book, Boys Adrift. Yes, you have four books now. Is that right? 
Yes. Uh, why gender matters, boys adrift, girls on the edge and the collapse of parenting. But I, I, I want to answer your question. Your question is, where do you draw the line? Yes. What's inbounds and what's out of bounds? My answer is very simple. My answer is very simple. Generic and classic violence is inbounds. Generic violence means violence, which is intrinsic to that genre of writing. If you're writing a story about Roman gladiators, there will be battle axes. There will be blood. There will be decapitations because that's what happened in Roman gladiatorial combat. And that's inbounds. But personal and threatening violence is out of bounds. So if a boy names, named Michael writes a story about a boy named Michael who brings a knife to school to stab a boy named Zachary, and there is a boy named Zachary at school who's been making fun of him, that's out of bounds. That's personal. That is threatening. We have found that boys understand inbounds versus out of bounds very well, and they have no trouble accommodating these differences. But parents and teachers are often uncomfortable. I was doing a workshop for teachers and a parent and teacher said, said, I'm sorry, Dr. Sack, I could not accept the boy's story that you just described about describing what happens when you blow a man's head off with a rifle. She said, I don't want to condone violence. She said, what about Columbine and Virginia Tech? And I asked her, please to turn to that page in chapter two of my book, Boys Adrift, under the big, bold heading, what about Columbine and Virginia Tech? We actually know a great deal now about Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, the two killers at Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999. We know that many months before April 20th, 1999, both these boys wrote stories describing bringing weapons to school and killing other students whom they named. And in both cases, teachers appropriately made a referral, but no definitive intervention followed. If a definitive intervention had followed, if a search warrant had been executed, as should have been done, they would have found bombs and ammunition in Dylan Klebold's, uh, excuse me, in Eric Harris's closet. He made no attempt to hide them. His parents knew they were there. But no definitive intervention followed. Why? Because the counselors are overwhelmed, because the teachers are referring the boy who's writing about Roman gladiators or the Battle of Stalingrad. And Eric Harris was such a nice boy. If you care about preventing actual violence, this is the distinction you must understand. The boy who writes personal and threatening stories, naming other kids whom he wants to hurt, that's grounds for urgent same-day intervention. That's not a normal variation. But that's very unusual. The much more common boy who's writing generic and classic, classic violence about World War II or Roman gladiators, that's fine. And if that's what your boy wants to write, then your job as his teacher is to help him to write that story better, to make it more vivid, more evocative. We have very good research, which I present in my book, Boys Adrift, showing that that boy, me, the boy who writes such a story, is not more likely to be an agent of actual violence. He is not. So you probably have observed various teachers teaching writing to both boys and girls, what would you say are some of the best practices that you've seen in terms of helping boys unlock their writing language um, verbal potential? Let me give you another example from a classroom I visited in Brisbane, Australia. The assignment, this is a year seven classroom in uh, Brisbane, Australia. The assignment is to describe how you would feel if... Uh, you had 
emigrated to Australia from Zimbabwe as a white family in the year 2000. In the year 2000, the kids were learning, the government of Zimbabwe uh, expropriated uh, many wealthy white families in Zimbabwe, took their land away, and uh, many of these families left, uh, but were not allowed to bring any money or valuables with them. So they arrived basically penniless with a few suitcases of clothes in Australia, right about what your life is like now. So a girl in that classroom had written a very moving story about how her parents still didn't have any money and uh, at the school party, she had nothing nice to wear and she'd laid out the outfits which she could possibly wear, none of which were, were very nice. And as she touches each outfit, uh, a tear rolls down her cheek and onto her clothes. The end. The teacher was deeply moved, read the entire story to the class, start to finish. Teacher said, class, that's great writing. Do you understand what makes that such a great story? Two things. Did you notice the detail of color and texture in Melissa's story, how the periwinkle blouse has faded to a dull sky blue, how the corduroy jumper has been worn to a shine. Uh, and even more importantly, class, did you see how Melissa gets you into the mind of her protagonist? When her protagonist starts to cry, you know exactly why she is crying. That's great writing. Well done, Melissa. I want you all to aspire to that quality of writing. Well, I spoke to a boy. He'd written a story. In his story, the father goes back to Africa, goes back to the side of their own plantation, digs up the diamonds and the gold that they had buried many years earlier when they saw the troubles coming, uh, steals a motorcycle. And from this point on, the story is very derivative of the Steve McQueen sequence in The Great Escape. <laughs> He's on the highway being pursued by the three police officers, goes off the highway onto the grassland, heading for the border, jumps over the barbed wire, jumps over the barbed wire, falls off the motorcycle, is surrounded by the three police officers. But he grabs a rifle from one, knocks the second one down, knocks the third one down, leaps back on the motorcycle and escapes to freedom with the diamonds and the gold the teacher was not embraced, impressed. She said, Justin, I have several major problems with your story. I know nothing about your protagonist. Is he tall, short, fat, thin, attractive, unattractive? What kind of clothes is he wearing? Is he wearing any clothes? I don't know. You never mentioned that. More importantly, the teacher said to Justin, I know nothing about what's going on in the mind of your protagonist. As he's racing down the highway being pursued by the police officers, is he terrified he's going to be captured and thrown in jail for who knows how long? Is he longing for his family back home in Brisbane? Is he um, enjoying the landscape, taking in the fresh air? I don't know. He might as well be a robot. Justin, I have to ask you to write your story over. Good creative writing, and by good here, I mean genuine, honest creative writing. It's very close to the core of who you are as a human being. Justin doesn't want to write a story about feelings and colors and textures. Or as Justin said to me, his exact words, Justin said to me, I already wrote my story. If she didn't like it, that's her problem. Justin proudly took a zero for that assignment. Proudly took a zero for that assignment. He's not going to pretend to be somebody's not just to please the teacher. The lack of awareness of gender differences has the unintended consequence of reinforcing gender stereotypes. And in the handouts I provide for teacher, teachers, that line is always in bold print, big font. The lack of understanding of gender differences has the unintended consequence of reinforcing gender stereotypes. Because this teacher, like most teachers, has received no instruction in girl-boy differences, in the kinds of stories that girls and boys want to tell, she's got one more boy who's decided creative writing is for girls. If you understand the differences, then 
you can, you'll be astonished by the transformation. And the boy who loves Fortnite and American football will love to write stories for you. Yeah, I think we have certainly seen that to be true with coaching parents, you know, and, and most homeschooling parents are mothers. And if they have boys, sometimes there's a disconnect. So one of the things that we stress in, in, our, in our teacher training, our parent training is, you know, hands-on structure and style. Here's the model. Here's the checklist. Here's the things you practice, but hands-off content within the parameters of, of the structure and style. You can write about anything you want to. And uh, so they will choose, you know, the dangerous or disgusting animals or, uh, you know, always in an Aesop fable, if you have the option to keep the character alive, such as, you know, the boy who cried wolf, or have him die a bloody and miserable death, a lot of the boys will choose the latter. And uh, some of the moms just don't don't like it. So that's that's one thing I'm doing. Well, well, some of the moms may be uncomfortable. And in my book, Why Gender Matters, I cite a study of young children in which researchers hypothesize. Okay, researchers gave children a choice of three stories. A story of parental love about a mommy bear and how she lo loves her baby bears. A romantic story uh, in which a uh, young man and young woman fall in love. And a violent story in which a knight... Uh, uh, has to rescue the town from the dragon and cuts off the dragon's head. And they hypothesized that children who chose the violent story rather than the nurturing story or the romantic story, they hypothesized that children who, who chose the violent story would be more likely to have psychiatric problems, anxiety, depression, or be a survival of child neglect or child abuse. And then they did their study. For girls, they found strong support for their hypothesis. Most of the girls chose either the nurturing story or the romantic story. Only a few girls chose the violent story, and those girls who did choose the violent story were much more likely to be anxious, to be depressed, or to have a personal history of child abuse or child neglect. For boys, there was no, the evidence did not support their hypothesis. The evidence contradicted their hypothesis. The great majority of boys chose the violent story, and boys who chose the violent story were not more likely to have a psychiatric history or to be survivors of child abuse or child neglect. And uh, again, many parents have never heard this, and they assume that if a child chooses a violent story, there must be something wrong with the kid. Again, there's some evidence to support that. Uh, guess with regard to girls, but the evidence for boys suggests just the opposite. If your boy likes to tell violent stories, that is not grounds for concern. Uh, I was such a boy. Uh, many boys are such boys. And again, we have good evidence, which I present in my book, Boys Adrift, that such boys are not more likely to be agents of actual violence, provided those stories are generic or classic, not personal or threatening. One of the talks that I do at a conference is uh, called Fairy Tales and the Moral Imagination, in which I talk about various types of fairy tales, uh, whole stories, healing stories, um, broken stories, and twisted stories, as well as different, I guess you'd call them virtues, that can be learned from the fairy tales you know, fortitude, generosity, forgiveness, etc. And uh, one of my quotes that I use in there, I, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with G.K. Chesterton, 
and he said, we don't read fairy tales to children so that they learn that dragons exist. Children already know dragons exist. We read them fairy tales so that they learn that dragons can be slain, to paraphrase Chesterton there. So do you think there's something something in that that, you know, the boys just they want to slay the dragon and and whatever that dragon is translated in, whether it's set in a war or, you know, a different kind of battle. Um, is that something that you've come across, I don't know, in your research or, or your analysis? Well, sure. Um, again, in my book, Why Gender Matters, I have a chapter on aggression. And I also explore, and this is more in Boys Adrift, the transition from boyhood to manhood. Most enduring cultures have taken that transition very seriously from boyhood to manhood, from girlhood to womanhood. Kids don't want to be adults. Girls want to be women and boys want to be men. But what does that mean? Well, it means something a little different in each culture. But in our contemporary American culture, we pay no attention to it. In fact, we uh, mainstream American culture, the culture uh, that is influenced by elites at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, deliberately and deliberately undermines any hardwired understanding of gender. And the result is kids who are really confused and they're looking to the marketplace. When they look to the marketplace, what they find is these exaggerated caricatures of masculinity and femininity. And some boys try to model that. So if we ignore these gender differences, bad things happen. We get kids who are confused. Ignoring gender doesn't make it go away. Ignoring gender reinforces gender stereotypes and creates enormous confusion. In, uh, in your book, uh, Boys Adrift, you, I believe, identify, is it five factors undermining the success of young men right. today? What are those five things? Okay. In no particular order, they are changes in education. As I mentioned earlier, boys doing things that boys have always done now gets you in trouble at school. Video games is a second factor. Uh, and again, a lot of parents don't get that because when a uh, parent over 30 thinks of video games, they're thinking of, of uh, Pong or Pac-Man. Uh, they've never <laughs> played RDR2. You'll find parents who don't even know what RDR2 is. RDR2 is the world's most successful entertainment. Uh, it launched a month and a half ago. It earned $800 million in its opening weekend, which makes it the most... We, we, we are, all three of us in this room, ignorant of what RDR stands for. Okay. RDR stands for Red Dead Redemption 2, the world's most popular entertainment in the history of the human race. Earned $800 million in its opening weekend. No movie has ever done that. No other video game has ever done that. I just spoke uh, last week to students at a school in Maryland, just north of Baltimore. And I met with the fifth graders uh, and I asked the fifth graders, I showed them a picture, a screenshot from RDR2. And I said, who recognized that video game? All the boys raised their hand. I said, who can name that character? Almost all the boys could name that character. Girls had no idea what we were talking about. Teachers had no idea what we were talking about. Mm. But the video game, the, it takes 80 to 100 hours to complete this game. That's more than two weeks of full-time work you're going to have to devote 
to mastering this game, to getting your horse to obey your commands. Uh, it, it is it is an immensely immersive game. And parents have no clue and they don't understand why their son would much rather spend his free time in his bedroom playing a video game rather than throwing a football around outside or talking to girls. Uh, again, we have good research showing that boys today are much more likely to spend their free time in their bedroom alone rather than doing anything else compared with boys just 10 years yeah. ago. So that's the second factor. A third factor is medications for attention deficit disorder. Adderall, Vyvanse, Concerta, Metadate, Focaline, Detrana, most popular medications for ADHD, damage the motivational center of the brain. This was not known 20 years ago. It is well documented today. A boy in the United States is 14 times more likely to be on medication for ADHD compared to a boy in the United Kingdom. Uh, and most parents are not aware of the dangers. Most prescribing physicians are not aware of the dangers, uh, which are well documented. That goes to some real corruption in the heart of American medicine. And by corruption, I mean the fact that the leaders of American medicine, like Joseph Biederman, uh, chief of, of research in pediatric psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, uh, admitted in the United States Senate Judiciary Committee uh, hearings that he's accepted millions of dollars for the drug companies that he never publicly disclosed, uh, that uh, many of these leaders are acting as paid spokespersons for the drug companies and they're not telling us. So that's a third factor. A fourth factor is endocrine disruptors. The testosterone levels of American boys are less than half what they were of American boys 60 years ago. And that's a problem because boys rely on testosterone for drive and motivation. And the fifth factor is the revenge of the forsaken gods, a great title that was suggested to me by one of my patients. The revenge of the forsaken gods is, is a great way of describing that chapter, which in more formal terms would be the decline and disintegration in the social construction of masculinity. So to, to summarize that quickly, you look 50 years ago, at the most popular television shows in the United States, shows like My Three Sons, Father Knows Best, The Andy Griffith Show, the fathers, the men in these shows were consistently knowledgeable, competent, reliable, productive, thoughtful, caring, kind. In writing my most recent book, The Collapse of Parenting, I've reviewed the 150 most popular television shows in the United States. Not one of them consistently or even occasionally presents a father as knowledgeable, competent, reliable. On the contrary, we have shows like The Simpsons, Homer Simpson is a bum and an idiot. Uh, Modern Family, the straight dad is an idiot whose ridiculous, clueless antics we are supposed to laugh at. His kids are more insightful than he is. Even the Disney Channel shows like Dog with a Blog. The father, supposedly a school psychologist, knows nothing about what kids want or what kids need. And American culture has become a toxic culture for boys and for girls. So what advice do you give to parents who hear that, read that, and they they say – well, this is the world we live in. Uh, you know, what do we do? We can't, we can't just shut down everything in the culture and run for the hills. You need to limit, govern, and guide uh, what your kids are doing with a screen. So my daughter and I watch several hours of television a week together. Uh, we watch The Andy Griffith Show. 
Every episode of The Andy Griffith Show, and there's more than 200, are available free if you're a member of Amazon Prime. I have no affiliation <laughs> with Amazon. But uh, we have watched over 100 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, which is great television. Mm -hmm. We watch Singing in the Rain. We watch The American in Paris. Uh, Sarah can sing many songs from My Fair Lady straight through. She knows mm -hmm. all the lyrics. There's a lot of great American cinema and great American television. Uh, out there. Very little of it has been produced in the last 10 years, but who cares? Uh, we can access it online. Um, and I would, uh, I have no problem with my daughter growing up knowing the Andy Griffith show better than she knows the Disney Channel. Wow. It's a lot to think about. Y you are a very focused and intense person. Uh, when I uh, listened to the new edition of Why Gender Matters, I was just astounded with the way you um, back you back up everything you say with research that you've collected, and I have to say a lot of it um, is kind of depressing. And do you do you how do you keep a positive view about the future of education and parenting? And you know, can can society turn around? And if so, um, what what's our part in that? Well, I took a five-year sabbatical for medical practice. I'm a family doctor, but I took five years off from medical practice to go around the country and lead workshops and meet with elected school board members and elected uh, politicians. And it was very discouraging. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that I cannot change the direction of American society. I cannot change uh, the schools. I cannot change Hollywood. And I returned to medical practice and I returned to leading workshops for schools and teachers because, OK, I can't change the country, but I can help this family. I can help this school where the leadership and the teachers really want to get boys more excited about writing, really want to get girls more excited about computer coding and physics. And I can share strategies I've learned from visiting more than 400 schools now over 17 years, strategies that work. So I can be confident in saying to this parent, if you follow these strategies, if you deploy these uh, changes, your son will be more excited about reading and writing. Your daughter will be more excited about physical sciences and math. And I've seen it happen many, many times. And I share those stories in my books, stories of real families uh, who have accomplished great things. You don't have to move. Um, <laughs> the original title of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, was The Collapse of American Parenting. And the subtitle was Why Most Kids Would Now Be Better Off Raised Outside the United States. Non-celebrity authors don't get to choose their titles, and the publisher vetoed that title. But you don't have to leave the United States. You just have to, to do things, to have the courage. You have to have the courage to do things differently, to realize that if you go with the flow and do what the neighbors are doing, the odds are, unfortunately, very bad that your son is going to end up thinking school's a waste of time, spending his free time playing video games, that your daughter is, is very high risk of becoming anxious, depressed, and obsessing over how many likes her photo got on Instagram. If you want to improve the odds for your kid, you're going to have to have the courage to do things differently, to educate your child differently, to limit, govern, and guide what they're looking at on their screens. But if you do that, 
the odds are very good. Good. That's excellent. I wanted to just ask you to amplify one point you made because I was just recently doing um, a a virtual conference. It was a five-day nonstop webinar kind of thing, and one of our sessions was on literature. And I got a lot of people who wrote questions, how do I get my son more interested in reading? And you you touched on that. Could you share with us perhaps – uh, a strategy that you have found helps with with boys in reading because I think it's universally acknowledged that children in general and boys in particular read much less today than they did even twenty years ago. Yes, uh, we do have a good study on that, a National Endowment for the Arts, uh, showing that girls are reading somewhat less than they were reading in 1980. American boys have just about stopped reading compared to, uh, well, they've just about stopped reading. As the authors of that more recent study, Mark Barline and Sandra Stotsky concluded, they said, girls read, boys don't. Uh, That's a quote from their conclusion. Uh, They said, reading has become a marker of gender identity. Girls read, boys don't. And this is true really across every demographic, Uh, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, affluent, low income. Boys today are much more likely to choose to spend their free time playing a video game than reading a book. So how do you get boys excited about reading? Um, So you're going to teach, you can teach the same text to girls and boys, but you're going to teach it differently. So so I share what I learned in a classroom of a very gifted teacher, Ben Williams. Uh, He was uh, beginning the unit on Jane Eyre, the book of Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. One of your favorites, Andrew? One of my favorites, but wouldn't have been when I was in high school, I have to confess. <laughs> and he, he uh, said to the boy sitting in the front row, he said, Richard, open to chapter 19 uh, and read out loud. It's the middle of the night in Rochester's castle. Everyone's asleep. And then all of a sudden you hear somebody screaming from an unfamiliar corner of the castle. Everyone comes running. They see this guy. No one's ever seen him before. His left shoulder's all covered in blood. Mumbling something doesn't make any sense. Uh, They call the doctor. The doctor comes running. The doctor cleans up the wound and examines the wound. The doctor stands up and says, this wound was not made by any knife. There have been human teeth here. Okay, thank you, Richard. Uh, Stephen, what do you think? Why would somebody use their teeth to work on the guy's (laughs) shoulder? Why not use a knife? And Stephen says, well, maybe, maybe he didn't have a knife. He said, okay, thank you. Tyrone, what do you think? Why would somebody use their teeth? And Tyrone says, maybe a crazy person. Oh, very interesting. Maybe a crazy person. Let's write that on the whiteboard now. Why don't you go back and read this book from the beginning? Stop at this page and write me one paragraph. Have you gotten any clues about the possible identity of the assailant? Continue on to this page. Write me another paragraph. Have you gotten any clues about the possible identity of the victim? Um, and the boys go back and, and, and they come to this page and Jane's got her first paying job working in Rochester's castle. She's putting her things away and, um, and she hears someone laughing out in the corridor. But it's not a friendly laugh. It's a laugh. It's like a kind of laugh. And she pokes her head out in the corridor. Anybody there? There's nobody there. Whoever was just there laughing vanished just like that assailant vanished in chapter 19 vanished without a trace what they do climb up in the rafters and look this is the page where i've got to write one paragraph have i gotten any clues about the possible identity of the assailant in chapter 19 well sure it might be the crazy person who was laughing in the corridor 
and these boys will devour Jane Eyre. And you get to chapter 19, you know exactly who the assailant is. It's a crazy woman who was Don't laughing. Don't give it away. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> unanswered question. She's obviously criminally insane. She already tried to kill Rochester and burn down the castle. Why don't they lock her up? Why does she have free run of the castle? And what's going on with Rochester's actions don't make any sense. And the same boys who love Fortnite and football will devour Jane Eyre and tell you it's their favorite book. Uh, again, I have learned many strategies from teachers at schools who have been very successful in getting boys excited about reading. Uh, you can, incidentally, that strategy, okay, Ben Williams' strategy, start in the middle at an exciting point. And then going back to the beginning, Ben Williams did not create that strategy. When you when you get home this evening, I want you to open the well-worn copy of Homer's Iliad mm. that you keep in the nightstand. <laughs> open to the beginning. How does Homer begin the Iliad? Does it begin with Helen of Troy and Paris and Menelaus? No. He begins in the middle of the story. The Greeks have been besieging Troy for 10 years. You don't know why. You don't know what the war is about. He jumps right into the middle of the story, and then you go back to the beginning. Homer knew this. Hollywood screenwriters know this. Gifted teachers of boys know this. We can deploy this strategy in the co-ed classroom. Now, when you do that, and I've seen this done, the teacher says, why don't you open chapter 19? Richard, please read out loud. Emily will raise her hand and say, excuse me, if the author wanted that to be chapter 19, it would be chapter 1. <laughs> <laughs> the author didn't choose that to be chapter one. The author chose that to be chapter 19. So some girls will push back, but the girl is not greatly undermined by your doing this strategy. We have found you can deploy many, not all, but many of these strategies that I've learned from the boys' schools. You can deploy most of them in the co-ed classroom with great effectiveness. Well, Dr. Sachs, this has been very interesting, a uh, little bit challenging, and I am so grateful for you taking the time to join our podcast. And uh, you have a website. You have some resources. Uh, tell us where people can go. Uh, obviously, we've mentioned the books you've written. Those are available um, anywhere. Uh, I just recently listened to Why Gender Matters, the second edition on Audible. It was well-read, by the way. Good. Um, I enjoyed it. And uh, – and then any final thoughts you have for the parents and teachers out there seeking to, you know, especially cultivate language skills in their boys and girls? Well, all four of my books are available uh, audio. I listen to a lot of books on Audible as well. And uh, Voice Adrift certainly would be what I would only suggest for parents who want to get their boys excited about reading. It's a good place to start. I also hope parents will visit my website, uh, leonardsax.com, L-E-O-N-A-R-D-S-A-X.com. Uh, you can send me an email through the website, or uh, you can also see where I will be uh, leading a workshop for teachers that you might be able to, to attend. Uh, my calendar is posted there, or uh, perhaps you could come to my, one of my presentations for parents on Boys Adrift or Why Gender Matters or Girls on the Edge uh, in your neighborhood. Uh, you can check the calendar and see if I'll be uh, nearby sometime soon. I will do that because I would love to have a chance to meet you again and uh, buy you a cup of coffee if possible. <laughs> thank you. I just, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, is it okay to say, are you working on any additional book at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I am. It's a young adult novel mm -hmm. set in Nazi Germany in 1934 about a... Uh, Jewish girl and a young German man 
uh, who fall in love. Uh, he doesn't know that she is Jewish and she doesn't know that he is an officer in the SS. So uh, I've actually been working on that on and off for 20 years and wow. um, hoping to wrap it up soon. Wow. Well, that would that be your first novel? Yes. Well, I'll be your first customer. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, Dr. Sachs, I wanted to just personally thank you for all that you have done for for me, for our family. For one thing, you've saved us a lot of money because I learned through Andrew and he learned through you about the temperature difference of boys and girls. And so I stopped buying jackets for my boys because I knew they were going to lose them anyway. So that would be right. just one example, very tangible of how you have helped my family. And this was this has been, as Andrew said, a very informative opportunity to chat with you. And we are so grateful for what you do to help our families navigate this field of teaching writing, and in this case, teaching writing to boys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudoua and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.